So this morning, we're continuing on in our series. You know, we have about, I think it's six or seven families, considering membership. I think it's the most we've uh, ever had at one time that I can recall. So what I wanted to do over the summer was consider some things about um, what it means to be a healthy church member. What is church membership? What does it mean? What is it required of us? What is it? Why do we do it? So this second one, we're going to talk about the ideal community versus the real community. Last week, we talked about justification. Uh, what justifies you? Why are you here? What is your standing before God? And it is not I, 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 but he, he, he. And so today, what we're going to do is continue on looking at our pronoun problem by considering the fact that our Christian life is not I, 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 but we, we, we. <laughs> so before we do that, let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much um, for the apostles uh, for the church uh, as, as it grew, as it was recorded in Acts, as we learn, Lord God, and under persecution, and when a, when a community is first being formed, what it was that you were intending for us to be, what you wanted us to look like, how you wanted us to act, what you wanted us to do. We thank you for their ministry. We thank you for your recorded word. We pray that you would open it to us now, that we would consider what does it mean to be a healthy church member? What does it mean to be planted in Eden? We pray, God, that you would give us a great deal of wisdom and understanding and comfort and conviction, and that you, Lord God, would be the purpose of all of it. We thank you and we praise you and amen. Amen. So to be a, a healthy church member, as we covered last week, you must receive justification as a gift. It's not something you can do, it's something you get. Our standing before God, our justification, our hope, our comfort, and our righteousness all come from outside of us. They all come from outside of us, and so does community. We must receive real community in Christ from outside ourselves. Community is not formed by its members. It is either strengthened or weakened by them. I'm going to say this again. Community is not formed by its members. It is either strengthened or weakened by them. The alternative to the real community in which you are planted is the ideal community which unrealized, tends to be a major source of strife and discontent. As the pastor of this church, I've been here a long time. I've been a member. This is only the second church we've ever been a member of. <laughs> I've been here 17, 18 years now. And, and what I tend to hear as the complaint about our own community, the complaints I've made myself, the complaints that I've heard <laughs> as a member, as an elder, as the pastor, have almost always been the same. Um, many things in life change. But how we complain about our community never seems to change. <laughs> and what I have come to learn over years and years and years of ministry, um, especially reading a book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is that there is this ideal that we're all looking for. And, and what I find fascinating is how many of us are looking for the same ideal. That's, that's one lesson I've learned. We have this wish of what community is. We have this ideal that this is what it ought to be. And what ends up happening is when you're seeking this ideal, instead of pursuing the real community that you have, you actually become its accuser. You become the real community's accuser. You become its enemy. I, I have been this community's enemy. I have seen people become this community's enemy simply because it's not living up to some standard that the person had in their own mind. Seeking your ideal community kills the real community in which God is shaping around you. Shaping that community, instead of being shaped by that community, is the death to unity and fellowship. Now, addressing our temptation to be idealistic 
and thereby unrealistic about our church community, this is the first step to actually strengthening the actual community, the real body of Christ, the real community of the Lord, the local church in which you are attending. By accepting the community given to you, being realistic about its weaknesses and strengths, its failures and successes, we begin to participate in it in a healthy way. Okay, what, what are this community's strengths? What are its weaknesses? What are the broader church's strengths and weaknesses in the, in the greater Puget Sound? What, what are its real successes and its real failures? Shirley's laughing. <laughs> Shh, over there. Seeking and extending grace, seeking and extending forgiveness is the way that we uh, preach the gospel to one another. When we're talking about living in a real community, when we talk about accepting a community that we have, what we're really talking about is the gospel. It is the gospel. I cannot extend forgiveness to people that don't sin against me. (laughs) It's really hard not to sin against me if you're never around. What I've discovered is very easy is if, I, if we spend any time together, one of us or both of us, probably both of us, are going to sin against one another. And then we get to apply the gospel. And, and this is one thing I love about Christian community. And what we want to do is we want to avoid strife. We want to avoid not having the same opinions. We, we think we preserve unity and preserve community by avoiding one another. And, and, and what we end up doing is killing real community, killing it. Psalm 133, verse 1. This is what it says. This is what was read for us when we opened the doors this morning. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What does this mean? What does it mean? What does it mean that this unity is our mission? What does it mean that this unity is our identity? What what do I mean by the fact that we're planted in this that this unity is created and comes from outside of us. We are called to build one another up, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.13, until we attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the unity that the psalmist is talking about. Our responsibility is to attain the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Seems easy enough. (laughs) Now here's the question. When you look at someone else and you see that they fall short of the glory of God, right? we're like, yeah, Paul, you are correct. People fall short of the glory of God. Now can you tell how much closer they are to the glory of God than they were yesterday? Can you tell, right, when we're looking at one another, is there some ideal, right? We're looking at the life of Christ and wanting everyone else. Well, you know, we're supposed to want everyone else to grow up to the fullness of Christ. And look at this schlub that I go to church with. (laughs) Clearly not the fullness of Christ. So so what ends up happening is we catch ourselves in this trap where where the ideal that we're looking for, right, is, is what we're supposed to be looking for, the fullness of Christ. But how many of us ha- have attained that already? Now, if anyone has known me, some of you, now for at least a decade, going on two, ha- am I closer to the fullness of Christ than I was 10 years ago? If I haven't, please see the elders. <laughs> right? Do you, do you look at one another and think, man, this person is much closer to the fullness of Christ than they were last year? 
Right? Is there a context in which the things that go on as we have community, as our lives brush up against one another, are we putting it in this broader context? Uh, this happens, you know, it's the same thing with parenting. I've told this story before. My wife and I were out talking about our son, wishing that he was more mature, wishing he was more like a full-grown man. And you know where we were? We were out on a date. Where was he? He was watching our five other kids. <laughs> and, and we had this moment of realization. We're like, well, you know, he's much closer to the fullness of Christ than he was, obviously. But, but why was it that all we could see is how he fell short of, of a standard? Opposed to putting it in some context where it's like, look at how much further he's come. Now, is it possible that we do this with one another? Do we hear about things that are going on or see things that are going on or things happen in the midst of our living together? And we think, well, what in the world is this? Where's the fullness of Christ? Or have you ever thought, you know what? This guy, this gal, this family, this kid is much further along than they were. Amen. <laughs> And, and, and what happens all the time is the ideal in our minds, the one that we ought to have, we, we don't know how to apply the standard. It is the standard. Jesus is the standard. But how do, you, how do you take that tape measure and start measuring people to see how far they've come towards the fullness of Christ? Community, like justification, is a gift generously given to us. It's a, it's a garden that must be tended. Okay? You, don't, you didn't create this community, but you're responsible for tending this community, for measuring this community, for measuring the members in this community to see and, and see how you can encourage them towards the ideal. But, but you, we have to learn how to do that. Otherwise, we're, what we're going to do is just point fingers. All we're going to do is condemn one another. Now, you know, Psalm 1 talks about the, the blessed man being a man planted in a garden. And it's true. If you go back uh, to the beginning, the first blessed man that ever lived, Adam, was made outside of Eden, was lifted up, and was planted in Eden. He was planted in the garden. A blessed man is always one who is planted by streams of living water, whose tree grows up and does not wither. So you all, just like Adam, were planted in the Garden of Eden. This is the household of God. You were, you were created outside of it. <laughs> in Adam, you were out of it. And then the Lord lifted you up and planted you here. Now, when you walk around or you're sitting down and you're looking around, you think, this is a beautiful garden. When's the last time you thought that? Or you're just like, man, this hedgerow is tall. These weeds are deep. This tree is not bearing fruit. That's what we do, isn't it? That, that's what we do every time. When's the last time you literally looked around and thought, man, God is doing a work here? <laughs> or do you think, man, I wish he would do some work here? <laughs> Don't answer this rhetorical question. Here you are among those chosen for you by the Lord. Uh, it, it's, you know, marriage is, is, a, is a hyper extension of this. I was incomplete, and the Lord made, took my rib and made my wife and gave her to me, and then I was. Well, if I'm the member of a body and you're a member of a body, we weren't really a body until we were put together. So of all the Christians and all the, right, all the nations that were Christian, all the ages that were Christians, everywhere there has ever been Christians, everywhere on this earth in every time period, the ones that you complete who complete you are the ones you're sitting with now. Now, you may only be here for a few seasons in your life, but this is the body of Christ in which the Lord created you to finish, to complete, 
to give your grace and gifts to, to be ministered to from and to minister to. This is the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 and 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, one of the things that recently happened to me is there's a phrase in here that got me thinking about these verses slightly differently. Because how many times do you think, you know what, I... Like, I am the foolish thing that was chosen to humble the wise, right? Like the wise out there in the world. I'm here to shame them. Look at, it, look at the foolish thing the Lord chose. What, 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 if it, what if I was the foolish thing and you're the wise person? Right? What, what if I'm the person of low birth and you're the one that despises people of low birth? Like, we always take these verses and we apply them in some weird way to some people who we don't know, somewhere out there in the world. Well, what if, right, what if the only thing he's working on is a local church? He's like, let's get a bunch of misfits together who have wildly different problems, wildly different backgrounds, wildly different habitual sins, and, and, and like, let's put them in a rock tumbler and just see how that goes. Well, that's not rhetorical. That's what he's doing. Right? And I don't know how many times it's been a comfort to me to think I'm the foolish thing humbling the wise. I'm very proud about this. <laughs> I'm just going to let that sink in. But, but I think we apply these verses in, in, in a way that, it doesn't, that makes them meaningless. What if we're sitting here, every one of us, and we are the people of low birth, we are the people who are wise in our own eyes, we are the people who he's talking about, and we're humbling one another, we're working on one another. That makes more sense to me than some no- person I don't know, who I can't name, who lives somewhere else. Some, some wise person out in the universe somewhere that I'm humbling, it doesn't make any sense. The Christian cannot simply take for granted the privilege of living among other Christians. Now, this is something that we've learned a great deal about in the last two years. Jesus Christ lived amongst enemies, alone on the cross, surrounded by criminals and the jeering crowds. The disciples abandoned him. Jesus came to bring peace to the enemies of God, and Jesus stood amidst the enemies who he, were, he was transforming into friends. Who were the enemies he was transforming? The disciples. Who, is the en- who are the enemies that he's standing amidst now, transforming into friends? You and I, my friends. <laughs> right? We were the enemies of God, brought into the mid- right here, and-, and the Lord is still surrounded by enemies that he's turning into friends. And so when you think about one another, do you ever think, yeah, you know, these people were the enemies of God, and now he's making them his friends? Or do you just assume everyone here, right? <laughs> was walking the line their whole life. There's a great deal that we need to understand about this, because the enemies of Christ are what? Satan, sin, and death. Do you live amidst enemies? Do you live amidst Satan, sin, and death? Is there Satan, sin, and death in your life, in one another's lives, in your family's lives, in your community's lives? Are, are you set, is your table set amidst enemies? Now, do you it's objectively true, but do you think about it that way? Now, are you sitting amongst enemies that you're trying to make your friends like Jesus is? Are you sitting amongst people that were his enemies that he's making friends? If he's trying hard to make 
the people sitting around you his friends, why aren't you also trying hard to make them yours? Why aren't you trying hard to help them along the way to be better friends with him? We, we always tend to apply these verses to someone else. The enemies, again, are nameless faith. Well, they're who? Joe Biden? Congress? Is that, is that what he's talking about? Those are the enemies that were our table of sediments? I, I have been to Washington, D.C., and even then, I didn't go into the midst of where Congress meets. I, I'm not in the midst of enemies in that way. You know who I do know, though, are you guys. <laughs> you know who I eat in the midst of all the time? You guys. Right? We are the enemies of God becoming his friends. Are, are, do we think about one another that way, and are we also doing it? Jesus came to bring peace to the enemies of God. And he stands in the midst of enemies, transforming them into friends, and so should you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, let me ask you another question. These, these, the, all I'm going to do is go through verses this, this whole sermon that we know well. I'm just going to ask rhetorical questions about them. Now, if he had to tear down a wall of hostility, does that mean that there actually is a wall of hostility? And if there's a wall of hostility, what is the hostility? If, if he is the reason we can sit here and have peace together because he's torn down the wall of hostility, what was the wall of hostility? If it were Greeks and Jews, we understand that. But what if it's, I'm going to use two names here just because I think it's safer. What's the wall of hostility between the Colossus and the Ebes? Right? Because this is a family, everyone, in the, it's the, my fellow elder, everyone knows we love them. But I, I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, in order to even have them as friends, somebody had to tear a wall down of hostility between us. I, I wonder if I'm building it back. Right? Am I coming around and finding bricks, little things that I don't like? Am I slowly reconstituting this wall? If, if he had to tear down a wall of hostility so that we all could sit here, what were the walls of, of hostility? Are they even torn down? Are, are you desperately trying to build them back? What are the kinds of things that when you see in one another, you think, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Why doesn't Jesus work on that? Why is that guy like that? Why does he always talk like that? Did he just blaspheme? Did he just drink too much? Did he just tell a lie? Did he just talk about somebody else in the community behind their back? And when you see these things, is it hostility that's becoming a wall between you and other people in this church? If he had to tear a wall of hostility down so that we could be here together, what we must do is realize there is a wall of hostility. When people come in off the street, is the pink hair going to be hostility? Are you, going to have, are you going to be hostile towards some person who wanders in here and they, has, they have pink hair and they got a nose ring and they got tats and they're wearing a hat? And you think, man, look at that bum. Right? Think of all the hostility that has to be torn down in order for you to love this person and accept this person and have peace with this person. We have to think, we have to be self-aware enough to know what are the walls of hostility. And they may be different for different people, between different families, between different groups of families, between different, different people here and people outside. Now, not everyone gets to live in a Christian community. If you're in China right now and you're a Christian, it's very difficult to live in an open, loving, 
community because the police will come and start shutting you down. If, if, you live in, if you live in Iran, it's hard to have a Christian community. If you live in North Korea, I can't even imagine such a thing. I'm sure somewhere there, there's always somebody not bending the knee to bail. There's got to be a Christian community, but imagine how underground it's got to be. I, it's like the Lord has a hard time finding it with a flashlight and a magnifying glass. It's so underground. There are people who are missionaries overseas, and, and, and when you talk to them, you know what they say? They just love to come back and go to a church. Because over there, it's like literally two or three people meeting outside somewhere on a Sunday in very hostile environment. Now, what are they yearning for, do you think? Because we're very individualistic about our faith. We think, yeah, they're probably just yearning for some manifestation that the Lord is with them, that the Lord is doing a work there in those people. But Psalm 42, verse 1 through 4, is the prayer of such people. The person living in a communist country, a Muslim country, the person who is a missionary, a person who's in prison, who's far from, right? Think of, right? A person in prison is pretty far from a community of Christ. This is, this, is what, this is their prayer. It says this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival? Now, we love this chapter because he's, right, that as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for the Lord. That fits nicely in a tweet. That fits nicely on a poster. That's a great phrase. But, but the whole concept, if you look at it, the psalmist is, is yearning for both God and keeping festival. He, he's, he's yearning for God, and he's yearning for the people of God. Uh, he, and, and because to be absent from the people of God feels to him like he's absent from God. Being absent from God, he feels like he's absent from the people of God. The two things go hand in hand. Now, how many of us feel just fine being absent from the people of God? We think, right? I mean, we yearn for God. We get that. We're with verse 1. My soul pants after the Lord. Cool. Eh, but the people of God, right? A multitude keeping festival with shouts and songs of praise. I don't know. There's a lot of kids shouting in there, and I'd rather just have a quiet moment so I can contemplate the word of God alone. Mike never turns the AC on. It gets really hot in there. I'd rather just sit at home where I have a fan, where it's cool, right? where I'm not distracted by earthly things. <laughs> right? Do you yearn for the people of God like you yearn for God? Do you yearn for God like you yearn for the people of God? These two things to the psalmist go together. This is what people who are deprived, who are bereft of, the, of the, the household of God, the fellowship with the saints, this is what they're yearning for. Now, you have it. Do you, do you take it for granted? Right? Does it get to be about Wednesday and you think, man, all I want to do is go before the Lord on his mountain, on his throne, in, in, a, in, a, in, in the group of festival with the crowd, the multitude of believers. When it gets to Wednesday, are you yearning for that? Are you pining away for it. How about Friday? <laughs> How about Saturday night? Do we yearn for the Lord? Do we yearn for one another? Or are we like, eh, whatever. I'll see him in a few days. I'll see him in a few days. It'll be fine. Man, Mike sends a lot of emails. He sends a lot of emails. Woo. 
I wish I could just get a break. Somebody else has got to move. Oh, my goodness gracious. Right? How, how are you responding to the household of God, the one in which you are a member, the one in which you are attending regularly? Are you, try, are, are you pining after them, or are you trying to avoid them? Do you need a break? <laughs> Don't answer. It's a rhetorical question. The church is a community of individuals brought together to be a people. This is always the, right, this is the tension. There, our God is three in one, so you've got unity and diversity. You've got the one and the many, and there, this is like the continual tension in human life. Am I an individual or am I part of a society? Do I, want, I want to make sure I dress and look like certain crowds. I want to make sure I don't dress and look like certain crowds. I want to make sure I have a little individualism, though. That's why I like my car. That's why I like my tats. That's why I like my haircut. There's always this tension between the two. And what I don't want to do in all the sermon is pretend like privacy or something is not, right? You don't have a right to privacy. Sorry to burst your bubble on that. But we ought to, as Christians, respect people's privacy. So I'm not saying that your life should just become this ridiculously open book and like you're fighting with your wife and you call me and you're like, listen, I want you to bear this burden with me. Don't be that guy. But we are individuals becoming a people. Romans chapter 14, verse 7 through 8. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So you... Right? This is, again, it's not I, I, I. It's he, he, he. He owns you. He owns you. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We'll see that jump there. If you're members of the Lord, then you're members of one another. If you belong to him, you belong to one another, and, you, and, and each of you belongs to the other. It, it, it's a two-way street. You can't belong to him and not belong to one another. You're members of the body of Christ, which means you're members of one another. And, and I think as modern American Christians, as indivi- rugged individualists, right, we're like John Wayne out there getting it done. We don't like this. This is weird. What am I advocating now? Communal living? What does it mean that we are members of one another? The covenant community is no place for rugged individualists, and that, same obs- uh, that some obstinately remain rugged individualists makes them hostile to true Christian community. Those of you who have made an idol out of, I can do this myself, are opposed to us. You are our enemy. Right? It's not, you, you, can, right? <laughs> you can be as self-sufficient as you want. If you, depending on how far you go with that, if you carry on with that, you are the enemy of God's people. Because God did not intend any of us to get out there and get it done all by ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his seminal work, Life Together, he said this, Christian community means community through Christ and in Jesus Christ. There is no Christian community that is more than this and none that is less than this. Whether it be a brief, single encounter or the daily community of many years, Christian community is solely this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. The only reason you belong to one another is him. But what that means is you really do belong to one another. Paul talks about this as a body. The body is a great metaphor for what the people of God are because we're the body of Christ. This is actually, it's, it's a one for one. It's very helpful. 
In 1 Corinthians, he has lengthy ex- explanation of this, and I'm going to read the whole thing because I think we need to really seriously consider what this means. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18 through 26. But as it is, God arranged, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, I'm going to ask you this. Does it say, if one person suffers, you suffer if you feel it? Well, I didn't feel like I was suffering. That's not what it says. It it has nothing to do with how you feel. There is an organic reality to who we are together that even if you don't know the person is suffering you're suffering now how how this works is it gets a, we get into the mysteries here <laughs> but i'm often sometimes surprised how all of a sudden i just feel bad i'll be walking around i'll be doing whatever i'm on a walk i'm looking around the sunshine's great i'm thinking about what i'm gonna eat for lunch and all of a sudden i just kind of feel bad and i start praying i don't even know why and i'm wondering if somewhere someone is suffering and I don't even know. What, what compels people to suddenly pray for some person that just came into their mind? What compels you to do that? Is it because you're a rugged individualist? Because you exist apart from the body of Christ? Or is it that, right, when the members suffer, we all suffer? Now, there's a, a great deal of mystery to all of that, and I'm not going to go too far with it. But we have to start thinking differently about what we are, not just who we are. Now, God is unifying us in our diversity. Our diversity is the very thing that, in the end, unifies us. Because the parts need one another. The thing that makes you, you, is what you require is me. And what makes me, me, is, is you. Right? The father is the father because he has a son. The arm is an arm because there's a shoulder. And the shoulder is a shoulder because there's a body to connect it to. And without the body, the shoulder is what? Nothing. When you walk through uh, these doors here, when you become a member here, the dynamic of the whole body changes, is changing, and will continue to change. This is another thing. I've been part of this body for many years. I have seen people come through the doors and leave through the doors. And you know what always changes? You get to see it over time. The dynamic of the group changes. Right? And I've actually gone, (laughs) I've gone from being a foot to being an eye, drastically. And I've seen other people do it. I've seen people... Right? They have no honor. Nobody knows who they are. They're like the backside of the thigh. And then next thing you know, they're the ears of the church. <laughs> the dynamic of the group changes as people come and go in and out of it. But we, we have to understand it's a complete together. A part, it, it's just, right? What's a pile of body parts? What is that? It's death. Right? Here's a bunch of disconnected body parts. That's a gross image, I'm sorry, but... 
What is that? That's not a person. We tend to think the most important part is the eyes. We tend to think the most discerning, uh, the, the discerning windows to the mind, the eyes, are the most important part of the body. We tend to think the ears, which receive sound, are the most important part of the body. Uh, especially in Reformed theology, we tend to think the mouth is the most important part of the body. And they are important. Right? A body that can't hear, can't see, can't express itself, is a body that isn't functioning very well. We think that those members that are most engaged in the ministry of mind, mouth, ears, eyes, are the most important parts, the parts engaged in taking and giving information. But you can have those parts, and the body would be incapable of getting up and moving without what? The second largest muscle in the entire body is the gluteus maximus. It's true. It's large. I, I, was actually quite, I, I knew that, and I looked it up, and I was still shocked by how big it was. And then on top of that giant muscle is a very cushiony surface in which I get to sit down on. Now, right? And without it, that would hurt to sit because <laughs> I'd just be sitting on my muscles. Now, without the gluteus maximus, without the cheeks, are we a full body? Right? Where is the Lord Jesus right now? I'm going to make this connection. I really want everyone to seriously consider this. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Would he be able to without those important body parts of the cheeks and the gluteus maximus? So without those as a body, we, we cannot be like Christ. But does anyone want to be the derriere? <laughs> right? This is, I was having this conversation at the end of the sermon last week with Eric. Does anybody really want to be the left cheek of the body? Nobody wants that. It's shameful. We hide that part. There's no honor in that. And yet... With, right, this muscle that connects your hip to your leg, you can't walk around without the gluteus maximus. The body goes nowhere. And generally, I would, I would say, this is, I'm mixing my metaphors now, the Reformed Church tends not to have this part because it doesn't go anywhere. Right? We tend to be very inward, ghetto. We're not very mobile. <laughs> I don't know what the Reformed gluteus maximus is, but I don't think we have it. Stagnation. When a church is stagnant, they're not moving forward. They're not sitting on the throne like Christ. There's something missing. And nobody, again, wants to be those parts. Now, add to this that the weaker a member of our body is, the more they are demonstrating the strength and power of God. Say you had somebody who's a recovering alcoholic. Say you had somebody who was recently divorced. Say you had somebody who recently had a death in the family. We don't want, right? we don't want to be known by our weakest member because we want to be a strong body. We want to be a smart body. We've got to be a, we're a church that has it all together, darn it. And yet, the weakest member in our body is the thing that demonstrates the grace of God to the greatest extent. Now, how many of us want to be known by the weaker body? And now I think everyone, just like when I was writing this, is what I thought. Well, what if I'm that? I don't, I don't want to talk about this because I don't want to be the person who's the weakest member. Right? I mean, if you had a contest, just imagine. Okay, well, uh, we're going to get the deacons and elders up here, and we're going to vote on who the weakest member is. <laughs> right? Or, or we're going to take nominations for that? I'm not exactly sure how this would work, but it'd be shameful for somebody. And yet, we, nobody wants to think about it this way. Nobody wants to be the person. Nobody wants to point the person out. And yet, the weakest person here, the weakest member we've got, 
is exactly where the Lord is doing the most work. Right? The, everybody who wants to come down here with their tithe checks and brag about all the stuff they do, right? we, we all want to be that guy. Nobody wants to be the guy at the back door just pounding his chest saying, mercy, mercy, mercy. Right? I mean, that, that parable that Jesus told about the rich guy and, and, and the publican, the one who can't barely lift his eyes to heaven, the other one who can't stop bragging about himself. How often are we this guy? We want to be the one down in front. We want to be seen. We want to be supporters of the church. We're a pretty big deal here, darn it. And we like the idea. We like the idea that there's somebody in the back there who's crying out to God, but nobody wants to be that guy. Do we boast in those things that show the weak, our weakness the most? Those parts that need salving and saving, are those the most blessed parts among us or the parts we want to keep covered up that we're ashamed of, that we don't want to talk about? We don't want to talk about it publicly. We don't want to talk about it even amongst ourselves. Christians are supposed to be self-sufficient, right? The Protestant work ethic. I've read Proverbs. If you follow Proverbs, it seems like you're going to be pretty wealthy, healthy, and wise. So that's what we all uh, aspire to, right? We're supposed to be self-sufficient. We're supposed to be the Proverbs 31 wife. We're supposed to be the king from Proverbs, pursuing wisdom, being so great and fantastic. How often do we think that's the gospel? Come and follow Jesus, and you too can be a king. Wait. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, Mike, let's, let's be careful. Yes, in the end, you will follow him, and there will be a crown that you'll lay at his feet because you're a slave. Because when you get to that point, you'll just be like, listen, I'd rather be a doorman around here than live in the tents of the wicked. But how often is the pursuit of him really the pursuit of his crown? Really the pursuit of the, the absence of tears, the absence of illness, the absence of any difficulty of any kind? And, and I mean, we can imagine it's almost attainable, can't we? As Right? The medical care that we have, how healthy we all are, (laughs) the good education we all received, looking out at a bunch of rich, white, middle-class Americans. We're like, man, actually, I think it's pretty attainable. (laughs) Well, well, okay, then, let's go back and let's try this. Let's actually vote on who the weakest member is. Let's do it. Let's figure out who it is, and let's elevate them, and let's pray for them, and let's focus on them, opposed to focusing on ourselves and all the things we can do for ourselves. We, we, we have it all upside down, right? We're, we're, we're flying into the clouds, and a lot of new pilots is what they do. They fly into cloud cover, and they can't help themselves. And they keep trying to correct the plane and correct the plane and correct the plane, and most of them come out of the clouds upside down. And that's what we are. We're in a cloud bank, and we, we're trying to make little... We don't know by what we're supposed to be measuring by. So we're making little tiny corrections. Let's do a little of this and a little of that and a little of this. Let's fix this community by having community groups. Let's fix this thing by having Trinity dinners. Let's fix this thing by having prayer meetings. Let's fix this thing by doing this, that, and the other thing. It's like program, program, program. And we come out of the bank, and what are we? Upside down. We don't get what's going on. Because the ideal is Jesus. And, and what is he doing? Who does he have here? Who is he working on? Where, where is the, the work to be done, the real ministry work to be done in our midst? 
when, the, when I dance, my entire body dances. My knees aren't left out of it. When I lay prostrate before the Lord, my whole body is involved. And so when we rejoice or when we are prostrate as a body, it's the whole body that needs to be doing it together. Christians need other Christians because without them, we're just a, a pile of disembodied body parts. We need one, one another regularly when we become uncertain and when we become disheartened, when we become apathetic and self-deceived and self-sufficient and self-condemning, self-justifying and proud and boastful and arrogant. That's when we, when we need one another the most. We need other Christians as bearers and proclaimers of the divine word of salvation. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 to 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We only build ourselves up in love when all the parts are working together. Are we working together? Is Redeemer Church a body of Christ that's working together? If we do not need these things regularly, then we are not Christians. If our community is not based on this need and this service to one another, Christ, 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 we're just a club. If your ministry to one another is, is, is not Jesus, then you're not Christians. Right? It's not playing golf together. It's, right? I mean, think about what I am saying. How much of your community with one another is based on something other than Jesus? Now, okay, I've had several of you over to my house to watch the Seahawks. I hope that's not the only reason I've ever had you over to my house. And this is one of the tests, right? Do you see that one guy during baseball season? There's that one guy. You only see him when you go golfing. And when you're out there, you're not really talking about anything. You're just golfing. Are you two Christian brothers together? If our ministry, if our association is based on anything other than Jesus, we're kidding ourselves. We're not Christians. The community is established and sustained through and in Christ alone. Bonhoeffer said this again. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more everything else between us will recede, and the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is alive between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ, we really do have one another. We have one another completely and for all eternity. Do you realize when you get to heaven, there are going to be people, right? We always talk about who we won't know, right? Or who we want to know who we don't now. Like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to meet Ben Franklin. It's going to be great. I'm going to have all these questions for Paul. Well, Paul will be so far up in the front of heaven that you won't even get to talk to him, probably. I hate to disappoint you all, right? C.S. Lewis made this point. They got, some guys got to heaven, and they're like, where's Paul? And it's like, well, see those mountains over there? Because the glory of Paul is so much greater. You'll... But here's Joe that you went to church with for years. Oh, Joe? <laughs> I, I thought I was going to, like, where's Winston Churchill? I mean, I know Joe already. And, and, and these are the things, I'm telling you, if you really stop and think about how we talk, are, are we really acting like Christians? Because I say that, I mean, seriously, seriously think about it. 
the first five people and the only, first, the only five people you see for the first 5,000 centuries is the same five people that you had over to your house the entire time you were a Christian. It, it I even, uh, I'm coming at you guys a little bit, but even I'm a little annoyed by that idea. It's like, well, okay, how about just like the first 500 years and then I move on to others? You guys all are here together and you're going to be together for a really long time. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> Christ opened the way to God and to one another through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Uniting all things in himself, he unites us to one another in himself. Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We have peace with one another. We are here together because he's uniting us together in himself. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. We are, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you hear all the pronouns? We were a bunch of dirtbags. We hated one another, but he came and saved us. He washes us. He, he regenerates us. He justifies us. He puts us together as a group. He makes us co-heirs together with him. But how, how much of your life is I, I, I? Or that guy, that guy, that guy. Right? Look at that guy. Look what he's up to. Did you hear how he talked to his wife? Right? We, <laughs> did, you, did you hear how we talked to our wife? We've really got to do something because we, as a body, are not loving our wives like we ought to. Did, did you, right? This is what I, I, I don't... The Christian life is deep and wide, and it's hard to understand. But have you ever known someone who got divorced and felt like you were a little culpable? Well, let me go back. If you haven't, you should have. Because I remember, I, I've, I've had this experience. Something happens, and I think, you know, I saw that for years, and I said nothing. And, and, and there's always just a little, like, I'm not responsible for it. I'm not going to stand before Jesus and answer for this guy's sin. But I feel like I let him down somehow. I feel like I let her down somehow. I feel like I let the people of God down somehow. Have you ever known somebody who wandered away from the faith, and you actually saw it coming for years? Some of you may not have experienced these things, but if you're in the Christian church long enough, you'll see it. And, and it's us. It's not just, right? We say, oh, look at him. Look at that guy over there. Not, oh, look at what's happened to us. Right? There was, a, <laughs> there was a wound. It wasn't given proper medical attention, and now it's caused gangrene, and we've lost everything from the elbow down. What are we going to do now? Or you're like, oh, man, the cancer's gone. Right? They cut it right out of me. It's gone now. We got rid of that person. 
How often do you think about it like that, opposed to the gangrene option where it fell off? You are united to one another, and what, what happens in one household affects what happens in another household. What's happening in one heart is affecting what's happening in another person's heart. We are here together. Where we are going, we're going there together. We're going to be there a long, long time together. Now, the apostles developed Jesus' command to love one another through a series of commands to show us how to do that. And I've talked about these before. It's been a little while. They're called the mutuality commands. Okay, I'm supposed to love you like I was loved by Jesus. Cool. Now, apostles, could you help me out with that? Because, right, love, love you guys like I was loved? It's a little, I don't really understand what that means. But in 33 commands, the apostles told us exactly what that means. And, and I'm going to read all 33 of them. These are called the one another's. Because God wants you to one another one another. Right? He wants you to love each other the way you love yourself. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. He wants you to one another one another. And if you want to know what it means to love one another, this is the list. It's only 33. Love one another, depend on one another, be devoted to one another, wash each other's feet. I'll go first. Rejoice with one another, weep with one another, live in harmony with one another, don't judge one another, accept one another, admonish one another, greet one another, wait for one another, care for one another, serve one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another, be compassionate toward one another, encourage one another. Submit to one another, bear with one another, spur one another on, offer hospitality to one another, minister gifts to one another, be clothed in humility toward one another, don't slander one another, don't grumble against one another, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, fellowship with one another, don't be puffed up against one another, carry one another's burdens, honor one another, instruct one another. Now, how many of those are you doing regularly? Here's another question. If I'm commanded to bear your burdens, how am I going to do that if I don't know they exist? <laughs> everybody's real busy, Mike. I didn't want to bother anyone because everyone's busy, and I'm busy, and they're busy, and I'm overwhelmed. I, it seems like everyone's overwhelmed. Okay, but did you ever stop to think the fact that God has commanded them to do this and you're denying them the ability to, to obey him? You're actually de depriving one another of obedience to the word of God because you're, you're too proud to ask for help. Right? My surgery, is a, it's, it, I'm going to be in and out. It's going to be real brief. And I'm using this example because it's been several times where it's like we found out somebody had surgery two weeks ago. We didn't even know what was going on. Now, I would have prayed for you like the word of God tells me to do, but I didn't know. I would have bore your burdens with you, but you didn't tell me you were moving. So how did that couch go all by yourself? Not only are we not doing these commandments ourselves, like we know about things and we're not doing them, but we're denying one another the ability to. We're actually helping one another disobey the word of God by being self-sufficient. Privacy is a means of disobedience among those rugged individualists 
individualists in our midst. The idea that you don't want to share your burdens because you were doing me a disservice by sharing them with me because other people are too busy is false modesty. It's disobedience masked as thoughtfulness. We are supposed to need one another. And if we don't need one another, we're not a church. (laughs) If you can take or leave one another, you're not a church. And and, and this is what I... Now urban sprawl. Okay, let's talk about all kinds of things. We got six kids in my house. I, I know for a fact that you can only really get to know 12 people really well. I'm halfway there with just my own children. Now, I understand how this works. I understand that some of us live in like South King County and some of us live in North Snohomish County. I understand there's problems. But that doesn't pain us at all. When is the last time we had a conversation as a group about how difficult it is to love one another because we're all spread out? Or do we just stop caring? If you can take or leave one another, you're not the church. Now, the number one violent opposing factor in all of this is the ideal in your own mind of what we ought to be. Now, this happened to me a few weeks ago. There was a family that came here, sweet-looking family. They had three kids. They said, well, where's the kids' church? I said, oh, well, we we don't do that around here, as you've all noticed. (laughs) And you know what? They walked right out the door. I, I am sure that there is a community out there that offers such a thing, and they will be happy there. Like, I don't feel, I don't feel like we've got to start a program now just so that we ca- right? We don't need a net that catches every single person that walks in the front door. And there are lots of churches that do that. I have grown in this area where I just, I, don't, I, can't, ha- I can't make a net that big. I don't care to. We do our thing the way we do it. <laughs> And those who hear it and respond to it, you're welcome to come in and join us, and the dynamic will change, and we'll see where we go from here. Now, that, that's one, I, right? I don't want this ideal of a church that's a big enough net to catch everyone that walks through the door and say, now I'm trying to create this thing that catches everybody, and then you're not yourself. You're not who you are. You're not doing the things you have any conviction about. I have no conviction to have children's church. I can explain why, but over my dead body will we have children's church. I'm not kidding. All of us here together worshiping God is what we're supposed to be doing. Now, I have, I have brothers I meet with on a regular basis who are pastors, and their church have kids' church, and you should go there. They're great if that's what you're into. I have no problem with that. But I'm not going to force this group to be something that it's not and that I don't think it should be. Now, if we apply this in other areas, think about it. Think. Think the last time you were with your spouse, and you thought, man, I sure wish our, ch- our church did Fill in the blank. Now, where did that impulse come from? Was it this? Were you reading the word of God and you're like, listen, you know, I just, I'm really concerned that we're being disobedient to God in, in this area. And I should write, sit down and write a letter to the elders and, and ask them why, about this question. Or were you sitting in your home and you just got a bugaboo in your ear and you think the church ought to be doing this and it's just because you think that's the thing it ought to do yourself, and you're just sitting there complaining about it. Now, how often do you do that? 
How often is your ideal in your mind that we fall short of because it's not who we are or what we're supposed to be becomes the accusation? Now, in the last two years, I've heard it. Right? You're not a church because you won't wear masks. You won't force people to wear masks. Well, if you wanted me to wear masks during this time, this was definitely not the way to go, first off. <laughs> Second off, you know, it's not who we are. It's not who we are. I, I don't know. I mean, several times I had to explain, like, have you met the people that go to this church? They're not. I couldn't. <laughs> right? If they were laying on the ground dead, I still couldn't get a mask on them, I think. <laughs> they would somehow not let me do it. Now, knowing that, is there a way that we ought to love those who do wear them? Is there a way that we ought to conduct ourselves so we're not those people? And, and pharisaical about things that have no biblical warrant whatsoever. Yes, okay, so pivot. Let's now talk about that. Let's be who we are in a loving and gracious and open-minded way. But, but there, there is this point where it's like you just don't get who you're dealing with. And, and how many times, right, this is low-hanging fruit, this example, but think of all the other things over the years that either you've been frustrated by or other people have been frustrated by. And when you stop and think about it, you're like, that's just not who we are. Like evangelism is another one. Now, I might say something controversial here. There are different kinds of evangelism. I have six kids. What kind do you think I'm into? I'm just going to put it out there. Now, does that mean you can't be about a different kind? Of course not. But if I have six kids and the majority of the people in this church all have young kids and we're discipling them and raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord and homeschooling them, right, and we seem to be all about the Dutch evangelism, should, we now st- should I stand up here and admonish everybody for not being evangelists? No, it's not who we, it's not who we are. It's not who we are. Now, are there lots of lost people in the neighborhood? Yes. Should somebody be going out there and reaching out to them? Yes. Do we have to necessarily come up with a plan all by ourselves? No, because there's lots of Christians that live in the area who are already doing things that we could participate in. But you know who we are? You know what this church needs support and help doing? Raising the massive families they have in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Now, we could be a church about that, couldn't we? That's who we are, isn't it? But how many times, this is just another example, think of others. Why doesn't it do this? Why aren't they doing that? Why do they talk about this? Why are they always talking about politics, politics, politics? Why is it always sports, sports, sports? Well, let's survey. How many of us actually used to play football? Don't raise your hands. It's okay. You know why I like it? I've liked it since I was seven. I'm not going to stop now. Now, does that mean my, on Sundays the only time you come over is when we're going to watch the game together and I don't, even, I don't care, I forget who you are? Like I get your name wrong because I just don't even care who's here. We're watching the game. Like that would be absurd, wouldn't it? But, but who are the people you go with, you're going to church with? What are they like? What are they into? What are they not into? Right? Now, okay, they ought to be into this, you say. Well, why? Because you are? This is the thing that we have to deal with. Because what happens is we have this ideal, we have this dream, people don't live up to it, and so what we do is start to accuse one another, and then God, and then ourselves. And in that order is what I always see, and what it does is it creates more and more distance between people and the community they're in, because 
right? They, some, some of us, and this happens to me, it's easier to accept unlovely people I don't know. You're like, oh, look at this unlovely guy. This is terrible. Hey, let's, I'll take you to Wendy's. I'll buy you a four for four and get you a Slurpee. It'll be great. And I just feel bad for you. And look, at you just need some money. Here, here's some money. I love you. Okay, then you turn, and here's some guy that I've known for 10 years, and he's acting really unlovely, and I'm like, man, you moron. How long, right? I feel like Moses. How long do I got to put up with these people? Because sometimes, and we be honest with ourselves, it's a lot easier to love the unlovely people we don't know than the unlovely people we do. How often is your ideal of what this church ought to be the accusation against this church? How often is the ideal of community the, becoming a weapon now against real community? Well, I can't hang around those people because they do, they're not this, or they always do that. Well, this is who... Right? The Lord didn't say, hang out with them, bear their burdens with them, if, they, if, if, they, if you can check all the things off the list. If they, if they pass muster, have at it. Here's another one, and this is what I close with. Because hospitality is always a thing. I've been beating that drum for years. I don't care, and neither does Jesus, I can speak from this, the size of your house or what we eat. I don't, I don't care the quality of what we're doing when we're at your house. God didn't say show hospitality if you have a, a table big enough to fit 10 people. He didn't say show hospitality if your wine, bottles of wine, all cost over $10. He didn't say, you know what, you have, here's the exceptions. If you have a small house and you only have two forks, which again is one of my favorite stories, the most hospitable people I ever knew, they were young, right? They had to pull the table over to the bed. They sat on the bed. They only had two forks. The one couple got a fork and we got a fork. And you know where our kids played? The crawl space, because it was a tiny apartment. And I thought, I have never felt more welcome. And we, we've, we, we are obsessed with our white middle classness. Right? If I come to your house and I use a spork that you had left over from McDonald's and eat rice and beans, and if we can sit there and fellowship together, I don't care about the trappings. I don't care about the peripherals. God didn't say be hospitable if, fill in the blank. He said be, show hospitality to one another. How often is your ideal of what you ought to be, what the church ought to be, Becoming the weapon against real community. That's the thing that we have to deal with. A healthy church member accepts, right? If we accept Jesus, we accept the one who sent him. If we accept the one Jesus sends, we accept Jesus. Are you accepting the people that he sent to you? Are you accepting them as, as they stand before you? The person. This is what they talk like. This is what they think like. This is how they act. This is what they do for fun. I can't fit them around my dinner table. Right? But are you accepting them? If you're not accepting them, you're not accepting Jesus. If you deny the one he sends you, you're denying the one who sent him. It, that's it. It's as simple as that. Do you want to accept Jesus in, into your life? Accept one another into your life. Do you want to be a community of God? Stop seeking this idealistic image in your mind and accept the people around you for who and what they are. Accept us for who and what we are and love one another. I I will send out the list. Here's 33 ways. 
Pick two and start doing those. Pick two you don't do and do those, right? Some of us, it's simply greeting one another. When I do this with teenagers, let's just start with one of the simple ones. How about we obey God by simply greeting one another when we see each other? And for all, I love everybody here, but for some of us, that's all it requires. Like, you do that one, and you're doing one more than you were doing before. (laughs) Accept the Lord by accepting one another. Accept the community you're in, this garden that you're planted in. Rejoice in it. Thank God for it. It's a great gift. Yearn for it, and through it, yearn for the Lord our God above, and be the people of God and Redeemer. Right? And get used to one another now. Because you're going to be together for a long time. Amen.